Thanks for pressing play. And welcome to this real, different dialogue. And by the end of this conversation, you will develop a new lens on startups, the idea of startup capital, how to have an exponential career, and maybe even a new way to think about the future, both yours, your businesses, and even America's. You see, our guest today is the legendary entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and co-founder of Floodgate, my longtime friend and a man I've done business with for decades, Mike Maples Jr. is back. And as a side note, by the way, his podcast, Starting Greatness, is truly one of the greatest business podcasts there is. It's Starting Greatness. I listen to every episode. I highly recommend you do the same. And around Silicon Valley, Mike is a living legend. What you're about to enjoy is a big, very smart, thought-inducing dive into everything from atoms to bits, or uh, if you will, analog to digital, software and networks, mass industrialization to mass communication and networks, and you might even be surprised to hear why Mike thinks the U.S. federal government is a lot like the Catholic Church. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine says we are the, quote, best business podcast, and there are reviewers out there that have called us asinine and overrated. Whatever you call us, this is the Business Dialogue Podcast for people who are making our world a different place. Now, readers like you have made Category Pirates' latest book, Snow Leopard, How Legendary Writers Create a Category of One, a number one bestseller. And it's the first writing advice book ever written through a category design lens. Inside it, what you will not find are a bunch of nose-picking suggestions for how you can make your writing better. Instead, you will internalize a completely new way of framing your ideas, stories, and insights to reach and resonate with the most people possible. That's Snow Leopard on Amazon.com right now. And now, as Joy Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. So what's this book you want to tell me about, Mike? Yeah. So, so uh, there's a book that I really like that was written in 1970 called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. It was written by a guy named Albert Ashman. And, and maybe, I should, maybe I should even step back. I think that um, the late 60s and the early 70s, we will one day look back on as a more profoundly important window of time than we currently realize. So... Um, the late 60s and the early 70s is when both the microprocessor happened and the Ethernet. It's also a, a window of time when Nixon took us off the gold standard. And so now with some perspective, I believe that most of our institutions, companies, the media, education, healthcare, drug discovery, creation, the military, federal government, most of these institutions were predicated on the animating forces of the industrial economy, uh, mass production and mass distribution. A couple things happened in the early 70s, I believe, that mass production, mass distribution became displaced by mass computation, mass connectivity. And so I believe that the animating forces of creating abundance now come from the power of Moore's law, right, which is a shorthand for improving computation capability, 
performance. And then what some people call Metcalf's law, which is the exponential increasing value of networks. And so I started to notice in my business, I started out just investing in companies like Twitter and Twitch and just pure networks. But then I started to notice that at the time that software defined networks could impact transportation, right? So we invest in Lyft. But now I realize that part of the power of that investment is that taxis are a failed institution. They're an institution that once worked. But what I, what I believe is happening with a bunch of these industrial era institutions is they went from having a mission that they fulfilled reasonably well, but now the people running these institutions are the inheritors of these institutions. They're not the founders of them. They don't even know the founders of them. They have no ability to even understand how the founders of these institutions would think about them. And not only that, because the animating forces of them aren't working, they engage in fakery. So we've got fake money because the Fed jacks with the money supply. And as a result, a lot of people in business make money through financial engineering rather than things that improve productivity. So you have the Fed jacking with the money supply, fake money. You've got the Fortune 500 in Q4 of last year spent uh, close to $250 billion just to buy back their own stock. You have the corporate media, which I always find it amusing how they criticize Facebook and Twitter and the social platforms for not monitoring what's on those platforms, because I don't see anybody saying that the corporate media should be held accountable for beating the war drums for the second Gulf War uh, or other things that had real impacts on our on lives, on our national budget, our debt, all these things. Um so like what I believe has happened is in a lot of these institutions, uh, they've trans transitioned from being value creators to rent seekers. And they've started to become more interested in preserving their institutional power than in fulfilling their mission to their constituents. So then back to this book, Exit Voice and Loyalty. It had a pretty profound impact on my thinking about this because um, what, what Exit Voice and Loyalty basically says is that if you're a member of a, an organization, whether it's a business or a club or a country, you have three fundamental choices in terms of how you give agency to your thoughts. You could, you could be super loyal, right? Like super patriotic. My country, right or wrong. America's always right. America, know. fuck yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the other the other option is voice, which is you say, hey, I don't I don't like the way you're doing things, San Francisco School Board. I'm going to vote to recall you. Hey, Chesa Bodine, D.A. of San Francisco. I don't think you're actually performing the function of your role. I'm going to complain. The problem, though, is that sometimes voice isn't enough. Sometimes, like like for many decades, a lot of people have complained that the Fed has been irresponsible in how they treat the dollar. And if, if, if listeners are interested in what I mean by that, we could go into it. But like the problem with just printing money and not having a market price for money uh, in interest rates is what ends up happening is you have artificially low interest rates. So hedge fund guy borrows money close to 0% and then buys IBM stock or loans it to IBM so they can buy back their own stock 
And since they know they're going to do that, they front run it. And so, okay, did any jobs get created in that? No. Did any new products get created in that? No. But people who played financial engineering games did well. And what you want is an economy that is not financialized. You want an economy that rewards productivity gains because fundamentally all abundance and standard of living advancement comes from people being more productive. That's how it happens. When a society is more productive, it's more successful. When a society is not more productive, it has to engage in fakery. And so we have the Fortune 500 spending close to a trillion dollars a year to buy back their own stock. And, and you know, uh, we, we see this writ large, right? You've got people who say we shouldn't allow SAT scores anymore. You, you know, K-12 teachers unions basically won't let you measure progress in a school. Everybody gets a cookie. Yeah, well, and we and we celebrate fake progress, and uh, we we do that to camouflage the fact that we aren't becoming more productive, that we aren't. So, like, okay, what's the third option? Option three is to exit it. Hey, Fed, if I don't like the way you're treating the dollar, I'm going to take my money business elsewhere. I'm going to buy Bitcoin. Before Bitcoin, you couldn't do that. All you could do is buy one fiat currency or another. But you know. What's happened in all these institutions is we don't just have fiat money. We have fiat news. We have fiat government. We have fiat corporations. And they're not um, they're they're no longer uh, justifying their influence based on the value they create in an objective way. And so sometimes the answer is to exit. Uh, And so I've gotten really interested in just this idea. I used to think of it as just startup capitalism, Uh, you know. Startups are an alternative way to create abundance in the world. When I was at business school, I studied traditional business, you know, create a moat, Michael Porter's five forces. What are the powers that a company harnesses to to increase its profits? Startup doesn't harness those powers. Startup changes the subject by leveraging inflections and creating movements and creating a different future rather than the same future. I started to realize that it's not just startup capitalism that we need. That's the thing that uh, allows us to reimagine a lot of the markets, but we need startup money. We That's why Mayor Suarez at Miami inspires me so much because he's doing a startup city. And you can do startups even within an institution. You know, Steve Jobs did the iPhone inside of Apple, but you still like, so I think of it as startup capitalism, or a startup politician, or a startup, you know, you 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 can exercise the, the option of doing things in a new way and and uh, denying the premise of the rules. Yes. And creating a whole set of rules. Yes. Right? And so that's kind of what I've been interested in lately. I love all that. And there's a lot I want to jump into. This is such a fascinating area, Mike. And let me tell you a quick story. My old friend, Nick DiGiacomo, when I was a young buck uh, and I was sort of bitching about in the dot-com era, I remember we called them big, dumb companies mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. And as a pirate, you know, there's always a, a middle finger in the air for me and, and so forth and so on. And I've spent my entire life as you have, you know, breaking new ground, trying to live in a future and bring the current present to that future. And so that's the world that I know, like the world that you know. And anyway, my friend Nick said to me, Christopher, the reason big companies are conservative is because they have something to conserve. <laughs> right, right. 
But but that protection mindset can turn damaging over time. Right. You know, the, the positive of it is compound interest matters. And so when when something's working, given enough time to compound, it creates incredible abundance. And uh, the, the industrial economy and its institutions really changed the world, you know, from when the, the richest guy in the country, right, in the 1870s is Cornelius Vanderbilt, and he didn't have flushing toilets, he didn't have running water, he didn't have a car, he didn't have all the stuff that people have when they're classified as poor today. And so, you know, I've, I've talked to people before, would you have liked to have had as much money as Cornelius Vanderbilt? Well, you'd be worth probably $100 billion in today's money. Well, what if you had to go live in the time he lived in in order to be that rich? Most middle class people I know wouldn't make that trade. And so, like, what he didn't what have an happened? iPhone, Mike. <laughs> I know. Like, how could you live, right? And so, you're certainly not getting any NFTs with uh, back in those days, right? And so, no, no digital natives. Uh, and so, so, um, like, I'm not here to say industrial bad. Uh, you know, internet slash networks, good. All I'm saying is that um, compound interest is a good thing when the abundance creation capacity of something persists, but when it's no longer able to create marginal benefits, when the system no longer works, the tendency of the people who occupy those institutions is to try to preserve its power regardless of whether that power is creating the type of good it has in the past. So I just think that a lot of these institutions, unfortunately, can't get out of their own way. Uh, I, don't, I don't ascribe any malicious intent to them. It's just that they're, the system that they're trapped in forces them to behave in certain ways that I think are counterproductive in many cases. So let's go to one that's uh, sort of omnipresent on my mind right now. And you mentioned it, which is the uh, Federal Reserve printing money based on nothing. And there's a couple of shocking things about that um, to me. The first one is uh, started in the Trump administration, continued by the Obama administration. If I understand the numbers correctly, uh, the Fed has created approximately 38 percent net new money. So let's call it 40 for sake of uh, marketing numbers. And so when I talk to people about this, even business people, they don't seem to understand it. Right. And the way I try to explain it to them as well, what our government decided to do to us is to say that what value you had, what buying power you had, the asset that you had that equaled a dollar in 2019, we're going to make that now equal 60 cents because we're going to print 40% more money and we're going to do it to stimulate the economy and to help people through COVID. And I'm not, you know, to your point on intent, I'm not necessarily saying there was bad intent, but nobody at the time said, Hey, listen, um, if you increase money supply by 40%, we are going to get insane inflation. Well, a lot of people were saying that outside of the government, people were saying, this is insane. There's going to be inflation. And, and you know, we forget that they tried to do more. They tried to do build back better. And so like uh, people are like, if you print that much money, it's going to inflate. 
And then people said, no, it's not. And then it's like it starts inflation. Well, it's temporary. Well, uh, it's transitory. Well, it's a problem. Oh, now it may be a permanent feature of the economy, but who could have predicted that Russia was going to invade the Ukraine? And I was like, you know, if you're going to put that much money into the system, you can guess you're going to get inflation, right? You don't have to be an economist. And this is what I don't understand, Mike. You were talking about the media before. Uh, every article that I fucking read in pick your media outlet that says, oh, the co- I, I just I, I've been reading a whole bunch of them. The causes of inflation are supply chain problems and the war and gas prices and da, 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 da. And I'm not, you know, and I'm no economist, but I'm not a fucking idiot. Are those things factors? Sure. But what none of these business reporters in the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and Fortune and, you know, pick your publication don't write. They don't even list it often as one of the major contributors is the fact that what this is fundamentally about is buying power. And when you increase the amount of money in the system, you decrease the value. That is to say the buying power of the existing money. And what our government decided to do was to make all of us 40% less rich, 40% less buying power. And, and, and there's no debate about this in the broad population. And I, I'm confused about this. Yeah. Well, and it's, there's a couple of things that have happened that are really wrong. Um, part, part of the problem with this inflation is it doesn't even proportionally punish people. So like, let's say the government's printing new dollars and handing them out. If I'm close to the government and I get that dollar first, I can go buy something before the impacts of inflation have happened. Right. And so it's another example of where financialization gets rewarded at the expense of productivity. And so, like, why is it bad that the Fed, you know, most things in our world have a price? You know, this pen has a price, and the price is set by supply and demand. And we would, if you ever said, hey, the government should decide what the price of this pen is, most people intuitively know that's a bad idea. Because if you, if the government says this pen costs 100 bucks, that's the price, the pen makers will print a bajillion of them right? Because they'll get a hundred bucks for everyone they make, or that's what they'll think. If the government said the price is a penny, nobody will make any. And so the reason that you want to have supply and demand set the price is you want to have the economy produce the appropriate number to, to get supply and demand in alignment. Okay. So what is the most important thing to price? I would argue it's the price of money, interest rates. Who sets the price for interest rates? The government does. It's not the market. It's not supply and demand. And so what we've done is in order to simulate the illusion that we're growing, we keep interest rates artificially low. We keep printing money. And so that rewards people who benefit from a price of money that's lower than what the market would say it is based on supply and demand. Who does that reward? That that rewards financial engineers and financialization. It doesn't reward people who make investments in productive capacity and improving productivity. And what I, I I think that this has contributed to wealth inequality way more than most people realize. Because like, you know, to the IBM example, if, if, if I get, if I loan money to IBM at close to 0% so they can buy back their own stock, um, no jobs are created. 
In fact, the only people who benefit are either shareholders or managers in the company who get a bonus when the share price goes up. But the share price isn't going up because they make better computers or because their, uh, you know, their services are better delivered. It's because they're, they've played games with the number of shares. They played games with the denominator um, of the stock. So, so, okay, so no jobs got created. Nobody benefited other than the people who are close to the financial game, uh, who can take advantage of the fact that money is being offered at lower than a market price. And so, you know, it's not just inflation. Inflation is a very poignant example that's affecting us in profound ways. But it's been this thing that's been occurring for decades at a time because we're not. And, and you know, it should not be a surprise that the gap between GDP and value of median wages is increased. Uh, and people say, well, that's that's because uh, guys like Jeff Bezos are bad or they are too rich. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that if you you got to decide as an economy what behaviors you want to reward. And a free market economy rewards people when they make productive use of their capacity better. But when you start artificially uh, injecting money into the economy, advantaging certain players in the economy, you start to make it more profitable. You know, it's now a higher return on investment to take a profit dollar and lobby the government for handouts than it is to invest in building a new breaking product for a lot of these companies. And so, you know, ultimately, when you make a dollar profit, you have a decision. You can dividend it to the shareholders. You can use it to buy back your own stock. You can sue people. You can lobby the government for handouts, or you can reinvest it in your business to make it more productive or even better. If you're Apple, you invest to create the first iPhone. But like, you have a choice of how you want to invest your profit dollars. And how you decide says everything about what you are as a company. If, you, if you're spending most of your profit dollars to buy back stock, fine. But like, don't daydream that you're in the business of making breakthrough new things because you're not. Yes. Right. Like the, the fact that you spend all your profits to buy back your own stock, you're abandoning all pretenses of pretending you're going to do breakthroughs. So there's a there's a perverse honesty to it. Well, but it is what it is. And this is the other thing I don't understand. I don't understand why when a big stock buyback is announced that the stock doesn't immediately crater. It generally tends to go up because obviously they're going to reduce the supply of the stock by taking it out of the market, that is to say, buy it. And so supply and right. demand, it's going to go up. When in point of fact, tell me if you think this is unfair. And, and, and you know, caveat, there are no absolute absolutes, caveat, caveat. That said, when a company says, hey, we're going to buy back $5 billion of our own stock or a billion dollars or half of whatever the number is, what I read is we have run out of fucking ideas. We don't know where the new categories are. We're not doing anything breakthrough and innovative. We're not in, we, we are not going to invest in our business. We are going to invest in, uh, I think you called it this, Eddie Yoon has written about this in, in Harvard Business Review, fake growth, mm -hmm. right? It looks like the company's growing because the stock is going up. It's good for the executives because they get stock option compensation. When in point of fact, in terms of, real growth, that is to say, real abundance, real value creation for customers, suppliers, employees, and all stakeholders isn't fucking happening. Right. And so it's this fake growth bullshit. And so there's this whole misconception 
And this sort of gets me to a point, which is, uh, have we lost track of what really matters in business, which is creating abundance, which is creating actual growth, which is exponential movement forward and reward for those, as opposed to what I think historically you have called the, you know, creators versus toll takers. Yeah. And and it's like, I think that yes and no, we've lost sight of it. Like, I guess over the last um, decade or so, I guess just my, my frame of reference of how to deal with it has changed. For example, uh, I don't know if you've ever met Blake Scholl from Boom Supersonic, but I mean, he's creating a supersonic jet. It's freaking legendary what he's doing, right? And he said something to me once when we were talking that made me both excited and sad at the same time. He said that the amount of time that's transpired between the Concorde and today is longer than the amount of time that transpired between the Wright brothers and the Concord. And it's like, it's almost like, it kind of gives you a wave of sadness. Like, how crazy is it that we can't get across the country as fast as we could 50 years ago? And, and, and we somehow think that that's normal. That's the thing that bugs me about it even more. Why, why does it upset you, Mike? I mean, I can see it in your face. I can hear it in your voice. Why does that upset you? because we could be so much better. And um, there's people out there who are saying, yes, you can do a new car company. Yes, you can do a new rocket company. Uh, yes, we can do supersonic travel. Moderna, yes, we can invent a virus by using mRNA uh, techniques. Like So what I, what I noticed in the last decade, and particularly in the response to the pandemic, it was the startup capitalists that kind of saved the day, right? It was the it was the people who made something out of nothing. It was it was Zoom so that we could still stay online and communicate. It was uh, the people like Moderna, Pfizer, who came up with the vaccines. It was um, it was the the DoorDashes, the Instacarts, the Amazons. Uh, those were the companies, you know, the companies that are predicated on some of these ideas that we've been talking about, on mass computation, mass connectivity, on creation of abundance, on not engaging in fakery. Those are the companies that got us out of this mess. And so, like, I'm actually maybe more optimistic than some, right? Like, I, I think that there's a lot of people who've lost the plot and they're getting caught up in this zero-sum thinking and they want to blame rich people for wealth inequality or, they, you know, they engage in this tribalism. But you engage in that kind of thinking us versus them, when you don't have a vision for how to make things better, when you have really nothing to talk about. And so you need to distract people. But like there are all people out there who are saying, no, I can exit the system. I can start something new. Watch me. And then, you know, I mean, Blake used to be a guy who was a software coder at Amazon. And now he starts a supersonic jet company. Like, that's awesome. Right. And, and I think that we need to highlight more examples of that, right? We need to make, we need to make not just the, the economic, but the moral case for startup capitalism and startup institutions, wherever they can make a difference and wherever they can, you know, reimagine the institutions that we have right now that aren't working. And how do we do that, Mike? Yeah. I well, I think that the first thing that is helpful in my view is to understand that a startup is not a normal company. Right. And so 
companies harness a certain set of powers, right? Economies of scale, sometimes network effects, their brand, their supply chains, uh, their pre-existing relationships and partnerships. They, they have a certain set of assets that they use to preserve their power. And for the most part, that's a good thing because compound interest is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. And so the ability for a legitimately productive enterprise to compound its advantages when it works creates a surplus for both the producer and the consumer that continues through time, right? The problem occurs when the enterprise is no longer able to prove its real productivity. So instead, it starts to play shell games. It starts to buy back its own stock. It starts to hire a bunch of lobbyists, get handouts from the government. It starts to engage in growth theater, like what we saw happen with GE. And there's a lot of people who have an incentive to keep that game going, the shareholders, managers of the company. And so to me, fake growth in the, in the S&P 500 is as ubiquitous as fake news in politics and media, right? It's the thing that you know is all around you and you can just feel it in your bones is everywhere. Um, and it turns out that it is. That, 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 and it's not that these people are bad. It's just that the, the system they find themselves in is not oriented towards them increasing their productive capacity the best way they could. And so I find it extremely exciting, inspiring, and optimistic and hopeful that, I mean, it's ridiculous that Tesla survived. I mean, it's, so, it's freaking impossible to start a car company. And yet here's Tesla, the most valuable car company in the world. Hey, he's launching rockets into outer space that come back and land. It's like it's like landing a pencil on a piece of paper, but it's a rocket. You know, you've got Blake doing boom supersonic. You've got people inventing new money. You've got people who are really stepping up, I think. And a lot of the startup companies, right, have done a great job, right, when we really needed people to step up. And so, like, my point of departure is let's recognize that for what it is, right? Like, rather than get in these zero-sum arguments where it's all about fear and who's to blame for it, let's instead recognize that there is a path forward, that it's when things are topping out in their ability to fulfill their mission, there's always the option to exit and start a new thing. And that we should encourage founders who do that. And that that, that is the path to the light, is to apply startup ethos writ large. And startups harness different powers than companies. Startups harness inflections, you know, things like Moore's Law or things like sensors getting smaller or like company we were involved with Lyft leveraged the fact that the iPhone 4S included a GPS locator chip. And so now riders and drivers could locate each other. And the other inflection was everybody was going to have a smartphone. And so now all of a sudden you say, hey, I don't have to play by the rules of taxis. Now there's a world where there could be ubiquitous networks of connected people who could find each other. We could bring the sharing economy to cars. And so, and, and, um, I, and I hate to interrupt yeah. you, Mike, but it's a, it's such a great example of how new uh, exponential categories create more new exponential categories, right? So the chip right. breakthroughs, the the breakthrough it, from Corning and Gorilla Glass that is on all of our phones that nobody ever talks about because the first rev of the iPhone was plastic and Jobs thought it sucked, and so. 
you know, that, that was sitting, that innovation was sitting on the shelf for many years waiting and the chips and all the, you know, the miniaturization that had been happening since the uh, early days in the fifties of NASA really driving miniaturization, right? All of those things happen. And then those new categories of technologies ultimately end up in the smartphone. And then those new categories create these new insights around new ideas and new opportunities and new problems. And all of a sudden, because we all have a smartphone, Lyft can exist. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, so overall, I'm, you know, and we talk about this a lot. I know you talk about it in category design, but I think that fundamentally startup capitalism is about harnessing the power of inflections to create some type of an insight, right? So like Lyft, the inflections were GPS chips are now free in smartphones that are accurate. And we believe everybody's going to have a smartphone, or at least a lot of people will. So, okay, what was the insight? The insight is, oh, that means you could do sharing economy for cars. And then the product, the original product wasn't actually Lyft, it was Zimride, but they pivoted to Lyft. And so when you're doing a breakthrough startup, the key is the, in, the inflections and the insight. Those are the powers that the entrepreneur har- harnesses not to do something better, but to utterly change the subject, right? And so like we like to say, we want to force a choice and not a comparison. And that's why, right? A, a legitimate breakthrough doesn't replace the old thing because it can't be compared to the old thing. And like once you see it, you can't unsee it. So that that's the first thing that a, a breakthrough startup founder does is they they harness the power of inflections and insights to utterly deny the premise of the rules entirely and to force a choice and not a comparison. And then the second thing that they do, we we sometimes use similar or different language to describe it, but it's like they create a category. I like to say they create a movement because now the future is going to be different and everybody's moving on the curve of the present status quo. And so a, a startup founder that's great creates a movement that moves people to that different future of their design and that movements are powerful in the in the capitalist world in the same way they are in the social world because they harness grievance in people with the status quo like you can't you can't reconcile the status quo with a movement because you want to self-actualize by ending up somewhere else and so a, a movement is a, is a style of going to market that takes all of the acknowledged strengths of the incumbent status quo and turns them into their biggest weaknesses, right? So Airbnb started to let, let you live like a local. Okay, now you're Marriott. Your entire business model is predicated on all Marriott's looking the same. You thought your customers didn't want surprise. You thought your customers wanted a Marriott room to look the same wherever it is in the world. Well, now it turns out people don't want a Marriott in Paris to look the same as Austin, Texas, or San Francisco. Uh, they want to live where they're. So now all of a sudden, all the things that Marriott's done to build a company to create compound interest advantage is now it works against them. When Airbnb says, okay, that's fine. They, they do what they do, but we let you live like a local. And so now all of a sudden you've changed the premise of the conversation. And so like the way you go after a big incumbent, ironically, is not to attack them at their weakness. You find the weakness in their strength and you create a movement that repositions that as a, as a weakness, and it moves people towards your idea of what the future ought to be. And so startup founders who create breakthroughs have to do both of those things. They have to have a compelling insight about the future, but then it, you know insights that don't get actualized never happen. You have to you have to have the the activation energy of the movement 
to make your insight real in the real world. Uh, and so therefore you have to move people. Thank you for that, Mike. Now, I, I don't know if you want to go here or not, but, you know, we're staring down midterms in the U.S. And while we've always been a country that has uh, had uh, healthy arguments and debates, and of course there was a civil war that we all know about or hopefully all know about, um, many smart people say that things are different now in terms of the level of anger and the level of violence. And um, sort of two things about that. One, I did a little bit of research, and if, um, if uh, Mother Google is right, the average empire lives 250 years. So I think if my math is right, what is that? We have four or six years left, whatever, <laughs> whatever that is. And then you said something to me, and I, candidly, I can't remember if it was on a podcast or just on one of our many discussions, but about sort of, you were on a thread about how the further away an institution gets from its founders, the more likelihood it sort of falls off its moorings. And, and the fact that the people, for example, in Congress in Washington today are very, very far removed from our, our founders. And so there's sort of this weird preservation mode that's going on as opposed to uh, creation mode that, that was the spirit of a founder and the spirit, you could argue, of our country's founders. And so with all that said, Mike, um, when you look at the United States today through your lens, what do you see? Well, the way I think about that may be somewhat unsatisfying, uh, but I think that um, if I look at, say, the exit voice and loyalty framework, I look at the United States as two things. One is a set of ideas that I think can preserve, right? The idea that people should have rights and that the, 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 the fundamental purpose of government is to protect people's rights. We, we don't have government because we love the idea of having lots of government. We have government because we understand in a society where people are free, we have to not give certain people a reason to use violence. You know, if I, if I have a farm and I produce crops we need a society that protects my ability to profit from those crops rather than Mad Max marauders coming in and taking all my stuff because then I have no reason to do it, right? So, so government exists, protect the rights of productive citizens uh, and w regardless of what part of the economy they're in or institutions that they're in, um, I think that we've gotten away from that, right? We've gotten, government's gotten to a point where now it's so big that it spends too much time trying to buy people's votes rather than and and creating this stable equilibrium of I can't be seen as cooperating with the other guy. And so ironically, they, they both have the same interest, which is preserving the same status quo, angry system, because both of them could raise money on that against the other guy. Um, so when I think of when I think of the other side of the U.S., I think of our various institutions. And I think we need to reimagine our various institutions around the animating forces of software networks, computation power, and the, the power to connect people together. And what those institutions are going to look like, hard to say. But I think that America as we know it or think of it in the past is not going to look very much the same as, in, you know, I'm not sure how important the federal government will be in the future. And, you know, the federal government to me reminds me a lot of the Catholic Church, right? Like several hundred years ago, if you ever say anything bad about the Catholic Church, you could be excommunicated, deplatformed, right? In the in back of those days, what that meant. 
you know, now you've got people who are really loyal to the Catholic Church. They're still super Catholic. But I don't know about you, Christopher, but most people I know, somebody super Catholic, we're like, great, you go to church every week. But like you and I, I, I doubt we spend much time thinking about what's the Pope think of this week. Like it, it doesn't have much of an impact on my life, right? It's kind of like it, I'm living, let live about it. if you're super Catholic and want to go to Catholic Mass every week and St. Peter's Basilica, great, go for it. But like, I don't think about it much, right? Well, and, and it, I think it, that, it speaks to the idea of cat, uh, category power, right? The church, right. in my opinion, the Catholic Church, and I was raised Catholic, has created its own self-inflicted wounds. Yep. And uh, and by not dealing with those wounds in a way that most of us would say would have been a more effective way of dealing with some of those wounds, um, they become less and less irrelevant, and so they've sort of they've crushed their own category of religion. I think the politicians have done the same thing. We can get to that as well. And so, but to your point, the Pope is not relevant today the way the Pope was relevant even 25 years ago. Right. And so like the Catholic church though, to me is a really good example of this playing out. So like, let's say that you choose to be charitable to the Catholic church and how they execute it. Even back in the day, I would assert to you that the Catholic church performed a very important role in its time, which was to kind of get everybody behind a certain uh, world order, mostly in Europe and, you know, how, how the feudals behaved and how the knights, you know, preserved the peace. And, you know, there was a stable equilibrium and the church kind of said what was true. And, you know, only certain people got to read and only certain people got to write books. That's kind of how it was. Well, then two technologies came out, the printing press and gunpowder and the printing press and double entry accounting, three technologies. Okay. The, the gunpowder changed the returns on violence. If you're a knight on a horse, charge it somebody with musket, different deal. Right. And, and so the gun changed the balance of power as to who could exert violence and force double entry accounting lets the merchants of Venice do business with each other without anybody watching what they're doing, without permission. Hey, we'll do double entry accounting, so we'll just each have a collection of IOUs, but we don't need to have some guy in the middle gumming up the works. Uh, And the printing press allows somebody like Martin Luther to say, hey, Pope, you're illegitimate. And so I think that that's kind of what's happening to a lot of our institutions today. Like, I don't think that the the Catholic Church was just endemically bad. I just think that they, they, they performed a stabilizing role until they didn't. And then new things happened that created a, a new type of equilibrium. It's kind of like when an asteroid hits the earth and the dinosaurs go away, the mammals come. To me, like some of those changes are so profound. And I think that that's what we're, those are the types of things that I think started to happen in 1970, in the early 70s. I think that that um, the animating forces of abundance creation changed and the institutions that relied on the prior forces became increasingly less effective. And the ones that rely on the new forces uh, are, you know, increasingly demonstrating themselves to step up to the plate and make things happen in a way that surprises on the upside. So let me bounce a theory off you on this one. So not long ago, I spoke at um, Bob Evans Cloud Wars Expo in San Francisco. And the topic of the discussion was that the shift to native digitals is going to cause more market cap destruction in the S&P 500 in the next decade than any other thing. And the premise goes like this. 
Once you realize that native analogs, people roughly over the age of 35, because we did not grow up integrated in the machines as much as digital as we are, our primary experience is analog. And if you're plus or minus 35 or under, that is to say you came of age since the iPhone, which is now 15 years old, your primary life experience is digital. And, and the profoundness, if that's a word, of that change is historic. You and I and the rest of the native analogs who walk the planet are the last native analogs ever. And that 180 degree difference that you and I, the digital world is a, is a powerful, important adjunct to our life versus it is our life and the analog world is the adjunct to your life. That profound difference is so meaningful and so misunderstood by native analogs, the average CEO in the S&P 500, if I remember the research right, is 58 years old. And so this leads me to a question, which is, I think what's going on here is the native digitals have already taken over. They're more than 50% of the population in the United States. If you work in corporate America, you are more likely to report to a millennial than not. Uh, and Gen Z is coming fast. And, and, and hard. And, and I actually, I'm very interested in Gen Z. And so the point is that new digital world, the native digitals have taken over already and the native analogs haven't figured it out. And that's going to cause destruction in major corporations run by native analogs and might, and this is why I want to bounce it off you, be the greatest uh, sort of startup opportunity window ever because we're obviously the greatest point in history for technology and the old guard literally has no fucking idea what's going on they, they can't see it in front of their face and as a result the opportunity is even bigger than it might otherwise be but i say all that like a question mike yeah so and and maybe i'll put my uh overly history buff lens on it so if you kind of said okay what what is the what is one of the fundamental shifts of the industrial economy to the, for lack of a better word, let's call it um, the software defined digital economy? I would assert to you that it's the shift from atoms at the center to bits at the center. So the industrial economy was an economy of things. You make widgets made out of atoms, and you produce them in high volume so that you can lower the variable cost. And then you transport them using the railways and container ships to people. And that's how you created abundance. You created more stuff that cost less money that you could get to people more effectively. And, you know, we had breakthrough after breakthrough doing that. We, we had the car, we had steam engine, we had railroads, we had all the things that we take for granted today, all the stuff that Cornelius Vanderbilt didn't have when he was the richest guy in America. Now you're, you have those things, you're poor. And so it was a miracle. Right. But but like one way I internalize your native digitals comment is if you believe that mass computation, mass connectivity, not mass production, mass distribution are the fundamental drivers of value creation going forward, it would stand to reason that most value that gets created would be created in the world of, of bits and not atoms, because those are the animating forces of the economy now. And so you would expect over time that you'd go from a thing-based economy to a native digitals-based economy. And you would expect that people who grew up in a world where they were born after 1970 wouldn't understand why that's even a topic. 
because they're just like, well, of course, that's the way the world is. I was born in that world. It's always been that way. What are you thinking? And so, like, you know, it's almost like you and I were the last people born in a world of Cartesian coordinates. And then it shifted to polar coordinates. Right. And now every kid who's like under 40 is like, well, of course, the world operates in polar coordinates. What else is there? That's all it's ever been. And so they just their 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 baseline assumptions about how the world works are just different. And so even if you and I are trying to be open minded, it's like we still have to do a translation. Yes. Right. We still have to like realize that our point of departure in the conversation comes from a different place and that we have to meet them where they live rather than the other way around. Well, and, and there's an interesting point I got to tell you about this. So I've had in the last couple of weeks, two radically different experiences with two native analog CEOs, entrepreneurs who are operating in the native digital world. In one case, the older of the two native analogs, he thinks that because he was a category king in the analog pre-bits world in the space in which he's now playing, that he's completely relevant and at his age and with his, it's not, it's not an age thing. It's a lens and experience thing, right? That he can build a legendary native digital business. And he thinks that he can do that. The other entrepreneur who's younger than this, but still a native analog says, I have what I think is an exponential breakthrough idea in the native digital world. I have a set of skills that, that leads me to believe I there's good founder category fit and I'm not stupid. I know that there's a whole set of shit that I know that I don't know that I know that I know that I have no intuitive uh, experience with. And I have to be surrounded, even though I have a great vision and a great appreciation for what we want to do here, I know that getting it is something I can't do. It's like if you and I were to go to, on a business trip to Japan, we would have no expectation that you and I would connect as though we were Japanese. We know that we're going to need help. We know that we're going to have to make co- accommodations. We know that we're going to have to try to meet them where they are and vice versa. It doesn't mean we can't be successful in, in, in Japan as a tourist, as a business person or whatever. But we, we realize that we're not fucking native Japanese. And the interesting thing in these two entrepreneurs is one native analog entrepreneur who doesn't get that he's not native digital and one who does. And I find right, that fascinating. Right. Yeah. And the, and the person that just doesn't get it at all. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what I would say to that person. Right. Other than just maybe you should buy back your own stock and get a bonus quick, but like, because I don't, I don't see them doing anything new in a meaningful way. Right. Because they, but, but um, what, what a lot of folks will ask me in big companies, they'll say, sir, you just saying the big companies are screwed, you know, no matter what. And I'm like, okay, first of all, uh, I'm not saying that, although it may be harder than you think, right. It may be harder than, so, so like, People talk about uh, Steve Jobs, right? And the iPhone and iPod and all this stuff that he did when he was at Apple. There was a lot of people don't know this interview. It's uh, maybe I can find it somewhere uh, online later. But um, people in the early days when Jobs came back to Apple would ask him, okay, there's a world where Intel makes the chips, Microsoft makes the OS. Like, how can you win in a world where they just have such an overwhelming dominant business model advantage over you, even if your software is better. And Jobs didn't say, well, I'm going to do something new with our operating system. 
Jobs's answer was, I'm going to wait until the conditions are there for me to change the subject. And so what, what Jobs leveraged was inflections to create a new product to change the subject. So what I, what I say to people who are in big companies, if you want to adopt the principles of startup capitalism, you have to have the courage to change the subject. And, uh, you know, you can't cling to what you once had. You have to change the subject. And you change the subject by leveraging inflections that are on the horizon. You know, years would go by, year after year, and Steve Jobs would look at their ability to do touch on a screen, and he'd say, it's not good enough yet. It's not quite good enough yet. It's not quite good enough yet. And they started out wanting to do a tablet, but then it became not only good enough, but he was like, oh my gosh, we could do this on a phone. And so they did the the iPhone before the iPad, even though my understanding of the history is that the iPad was the first idea. But so what, what Jobs understood is that sometimes you're in a competitive framework where you can't pedal faster. You got to change the rules and you've got to, you know, you, you, you have to force a choice and not a comparison, right? You couldn't, you couldn't compare the iPhone to any phone that had come before it. No, nobody after they saw an iPhone said, oh yeah, well, how does that compare to that Nokia phone over there that does janky J2ME ringtones, right? Like it wasn't, you know, you couldn't compare it to anything that came. Nobody compared it to the category king at the time, which is the BlackBerry. Nobody. Right. right. Everybody knew it was a different thing. Yeah. And and to some degree, it's axiomatic that if you've created a true breakthrough that changed the subject, people won't say, oh, well, then how does this compare to X? If, if, If the way people respond to your ideas, how does this compare to X? That's a sign that either your idea is not a big enough breakthrough or you're not languaging it properly as a breakthrough. But, um, you know, a, a legitimate breakthrough, one of the first tests is it can't be reconciled with what came before it. But like you can do that inside of a big company, but you can't do that inside of a big company by doing more of the same. You have to harness new powers on the horizon that allow you to change the subject. And that requires you to take a risk that, most companies just aren't willing to take. And it's interesting to me that they're willing to take the, if you will, risk of fake growth, of financialization, uh, as opposed to of creation of real value. And you and I talked about this in one of our uh, offline conversations a while ago. You know, when we were kids coming up, one of the big heroes in, in business was Jack Welsh. I mean, he was the biggest CEO hero. Yep. And um, now, of course, it's been exposed that not so much. And there's a new book out by a guy named David Gellis. I don't know if you've seen this. It's titled The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Walsh Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America. And, And we now look at it and go, you know, we thought Jack was awesome, but a lot of what he did was financial engineering. And interestingly enough, today, most people, there is... There are very few celebrity S&P 500 CEOs anymore, and most of the celebrity business people today are entrepreneurs. But I'm curious as to your reaction yeah. about all that. It, it, and, you know, I find that actually to be very encouraging. But I agree. Like when I was in high school, if you'd said to me, name a famous business person, I would have said Jack Welch. Or I would have said uh, at the time, uh, John Akers was the CEO of IBM. I don't know who the CEO of GE is right now. Do you? No. And do you know who the CEO of IBM is? I actually don't know who the CEO of IBM is. I don't know who the CEO of Coke is. 
I don't know who the CEO of uh, McDonald's. American Airlines is. Right. McDonald's. I don't know. I don't know who they are. Yeah. Like when I was when I was like 20 years old, I knew who those people right. were, even though I didn't have a job yet. Right. And so so like and my kids, you're exactly right. If you said name a fa- famous business person, they'd say Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs or, you know, somebody like that. Right. I see that's a sign to me that we're going to get through this, right? Because it's good that those are the people who are celebrated in business because those are the startup capitalists. And it's, it's good that uh, people would aspire to make change the way they do. And so, so I think that, that that's actually a, a very encouraging sign. Now, why is it most people spend their career not in what you would call startup capital? That is to say, creating new and different futures. Most people spend most of their lives working on fairly incremental things. And there's a role for that. I mean, to your point on compound interest. And if every year you make the quality and safety of an automobile a few points better, that's an important thing. Because after a decade or 15 years, there will be a big change. So I sometimes people misconstrue what I say about incrementalism. There is a very important role for incrementalism. However, net new breakthroughs generally don't come from that. Right. Quality and stability and safety come from that all important. But, um, you know, to your, to your point on Elon, he's not doing anything incremental. What's the boom guy's name again? Oh, Blake Scholl. Yeah. Yeah. Blake's not sitting there saying, you know, how, how do we get a 10% improvement in fuel efficiency from our current engines? He, that's not a conversation Blake's having, right? Right, right. So why do more people sort to the incremental as opposed to the exponential? Well, I think that a, a couple reasons. I think first, we are status-seeking creatures in many ways by design, right? People tend to compare themselves to other people. People tend to be biased towards things that make them comfortable, that get approval, and we, we get that message drummed into us from a very young age, right? So we go to school and we get good grades by telling the teacher answers to questions that they w- want to hear where there is an answer, where someone's already discovered the answer. And it's funny, it's, it's, so, it's so basic that we often overlook how in plain sight it is, but is creativity really taught in school? Like, does anybody ever study, well, what creative process did Einstein have or Isaac Newton or Leonardo da Vinci or some of these people? Are there are there things that they did that contributed to the likelihood that they would have a breakthrough idea? That stuff doesn't get studied because there's no way to frame a precise, repetitive answer in a book. And so, you know, you get rewarded in school for having answers to questions that are answerable with something tangible that you can reason your way through. Okay. Why does that matter? Well, if you want to win a tournament in high school and go to a fancy college and get an awesome job, you have to master those skills. And so I think that naturally we tend to gravitate towards things that will increase our status. And if we if if we do things that are incremental by someone else's rules, we'll tend to get approval from people who are sort of in the mainstream, if you will. A breakthrough requires you to break free from what's being done. And so on some level, you have to be disagreeable by definition. And so, you know. Some of us are better at that than others. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But the the best founders I know are if there's a choice between 
failing in a mission they believe in and preserving their status versus succeeding in the mission of being disagreeable, they'll do the latter. Most people won't do that. So, so that's kind of one thing is just knowing, knowing the process of how people seek status, even when it's not always in their own self-interest. The other thing though, that I've noticed, and this is, you know, I'm going to, I'm working on a book on this topic, but a lot of people don't know the difference between how do I know if my idea is a breakthrough versus not. There's lots of startups out there, right? There's 15,000 that get funded a year. Only a few of them lead to breakthroughs. How can we help people understand that breakthroughs come not by operating by the incumbent's rules and building a better mousetrap within those rules, but instead they come by harnessing the power of inflections and insights to change the subject altogether. And so even if you're not Elon Musk, even if you're not Steve Jobs, not Jeff Bezos, what I want to help people think about is how can I find projects that harness those powers and devote my time and talent to those things, right? Because I don't have to be the right brothers to decide that I want to help them make airplanes in the future, right? And I don't have to be Blake Scholl to decide all things being equal. I think I'd rather work at Boom Supersonic than a company that spends, you know, two thirds of its profits buying back its own stock. Right. Uh, you do have a choice, right? And like, I, by the way, I've got nothing against incrementalism either. What I have something against is fake progress altogether. Mm. That's the problem. Some of these companies are not becoming incrementally better. Some of these companies are becoming arguably worse, yep. but they're hiding the fact that their productivity is not improving by camouflaging it with fake growth and shell games. And, and they're trying to squeeze out the last drops of a dying category, right? Right, right. And so th those, those are the people I have an objection to. Like the people who know that they can't fulfill the core mission of their business anymore or of their institution writ large. Yes. And so what do they do? They get, they engage in these fake progress games, whether it's fake, fake progress in schools. We don't measure test scores anymore. We don't have admission criteria in Lowell school in San Francisco, uh, whether it's, um, you know, fake, fake progress in the military in Afghanistan, you know, fake, uh, growth in the fortune 500 fakery of the money supply, with the Fed jacking with interest rates, you know, uh, fake uh, growth in the economy by printing lots of money and inflating the currency and punishing savers uh, by doing so. Um, you know, that's what I have an objection to. Here's There's another fake who, one uh, that I have. Fake thought leaders. Yeah. Yeah. People who say build your personal brand. Yeah, so these people on the Internet, right? It's like you're not thoughtful and you're not leading regurgitating bullshit like it's it's hump wednesday let's go for it mm, follow your passion Blah. and you know because you want to get 450 likes on your stupid post because you just puked out a bunch of problematic bullshit that's not people confuse that with leadership people confuse that with thinking it's not thinking it's the opposite of thing it's actually to right, your point, right. it, the fake shit makes you stupider or worse Right. And it's a form of fakery in the sense that, yeah, you may get a lot of tweets and likes and retweets and quote tweets and that kind of stuff. But you're not you're not fundamentally adding to the conversation that takes place in the world. You're you're judging your success based on a set of bullshit metrics around getting attention, but not for anything that you deliver, you're getting attention for its own sake. Well, and here's the confusion. I, I posted this recently on both LinkedIn and Twitter, and I could not believe 
the loud screaming arguments I got. And the, the post said, it's not marketing if it doesn't drive revenue. And a lot of people in marketing want to argue with me. Well, you know, that marketing is about a lot more than that. And what about awareness? And what about... I'm like, listen, I didn't say all marketing needs to produce revenue this second. Some now, some midterm, some long-term. Marketing is both a tactical and a strategic uh, function. But it should not be controversial that marketing must produce fucking revenue. That's And yet... And then one guy says to me, Mike, he's like, well, yeah, that's true for, and he uses the term revenue marketing, but for all these other, you know, content marketing's job is not to produce revenue. I'm like, wow, we are really fucking confused here, aren't we? Yeah. So the only, my only thing is if as a startup capitalist, I would say startup marketing, yes, it needs to generate revenue, but it also needs to move people to a better future. And so, so like, for example, I've seen you write about this before. They interviewed a bunch of the top executives at Kraft and asked, do you do you consume your own product? Do you feed Velveeta cheese to your kids? And most of them said no. And like, I'm trying, I'm not going to be trying to moralize too much, but like, I wouldn't want to work in a company where I don't believe in the product I'm selling, regardless of whether it generates revenue. I may run the best Super Bowl ads ever that generate tons of revenue. But like for me, there's like if you're a startup capitalist, there's um, there there's a another dimension to it, which is, can you legitimately feel like like you know Brian Chesky? He lives in Airbnbs when he travels, like he he uses his product. He he actually believes he has a better product, and so does Elon Musk, and so does Jeff Bezos. And here's the th- other thing: you tell me because you know Chesky better than I do. That's for sure. The reason he doesn't stay at a Four Seasons is not because he doesn't want the media to take a picture of him walking into a Four Seasons. Right. He does it because he actually is a missionary who fucking believes, right? This is why when, you know, let's throw one of our favorite politicians under the bus, Newsom. You know, when Newsom goes to the French Laundry without a mask on in the middle of the kind of heat of the pandemic, everybody catches him for being a hypocrite. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, and this and that. And the reason it's so painful is not that he, quote, made a mistake that we should all forgive him for. I think, you know, humans can do that. It's that you're evangelizing a point of view for us, which you yourself do not believe, which is the deepest inauthenticity there is. So in other words, my point is a guy, an entrepreneur who's a visionary, who creates a movement, who creates a category, who cha- who moves the world from an old way to a new way does it in this case because he believes this is the superior way to travel, not because of the shame that he would get by staying at uh, uh, Ritz-Carlton or whatever. Yeah, so maybe we're converging on a new term, fake marketing. And I would argue that fake marketing is successfully evangelizing a point of view that you don't yourself believe in. And so, you know, you can get other people to buy your stuff, but you believe that you're selling them crap. But you say, hey, look, I'm hired to do a job here. It's to sell you crap that I don't believe in. And I like to me, that is the antithesis of startup capitalism, right? It's a, and you know, hey, everybody's got their own reason to do what they do, right? It's fine. But like to me, it's, it's a, if you're trying to change the world by changing the subject, that question needs to matter. It can't be just what you can convince people to buy. It's got to be, 
on the path to a better future that you believe. Right. So I remember, actually, I don't know why I'm remembering this now, but I remember at your wedding, sitting at the table we were at, having a discussion about investing and, and this and that, and sort of this kind of idea. And the topic that came up at the time, the company was very valuable at the time, not so much today, is Jewel. Uh-huh. And the question posed at the table, not by me, but at somebody, one of your other smart friends was, okay, would you invest in Jewel? It's a legal product, at least at the time. And, but you know it's bad for people and it's addictive and so forth and so on. And so would you invest in a legal product that you know is bad for people where you could make money? Or to your point, do you have to, quote unquote, believe in the product and, and use the product? Yeah, and for me, Jewel would be a hard pass because I just, I wouldn't feel good about about the job I was doing, right? And I, I feel like I can succeed better than good enough working with founders where I believe in what they're doing. And so like, why would you waste any of your time or works of energy on the other thing? Even if it does give you more beans to count at the end. And so I, I, I guess um, t- to me, that's that the answer to that for me is pretty obvious. Yeah. It, get, it, get, it gets harder when you're involved with a company and there's some things that are happening that you don't like, right? There's not, not everything that Twitter does is something I like, but um, fundamentally, I think Twitter does a lot more good in the world than bad. And there's a lot of things that, boy, I wish I could change or fix that I can't, uh, that, you could, that you just could have never known at the time that you invested. And so those are, those are the trickier ones where you invest and you believe in what they're doing then you still do in many ways, but there's other stuff that they do where you're like, eh, not sure I would defend that. <laughs> it gets murkier over time, right? It's it's easy when it's an easy decision. It's black and white, jewel or not. It's obvious at the front. Twitter's amazing. But but to me, the difference in like like Twitter, there's several things about it that I wish were different, but I'm willing to have that conversation, right? I don't sit there and say, how can I cynically manipulate people into believing that those weaknesses aren't there, right? And that's, like that's what too many people in corporate America do is they say, yeah, I know that Velveeta is crap for you, but I need to run ads to make you think it's going to be awesome to eat Velveeta cheese. And it's like, that's just not what I'm in it for. Right. Uh, I try not to tell everybody else how they should live their life. But like to me, the startup capitalists, that's not what they're in it for. Uh, they're in it for that. Um, they want to create a different future. That's what animates their excitement and what what causes them to make the enormous sacrifices they make to make these companies happen. Yes. And now some people, you know, I've had this discussion, people say, oh, that's easy for you. You know, you're in a unique position. You've, you're not up and coming anymore. You, you, you have some financial resources. And in other words, you could tell people to go F, F off and be selective and so forth and so on. But Hey man, I, I'm coming up. I, I, I need to, uh, as George W. Bush said, put food on the family. And so, um, you know, you're a fucking rich asshole. You don't know what you're talking about. And so in a situation like the one we're in now, a more challenging economy where, um, you know, some of us are seriously challenged and people are getting laid off and all that. How do you sort of, sort of reconcile in your mind the need to put food on the family with, I also want to do something that's going to make a difference as opposed to sell Velveeta. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, most of the, most of the companies that I'm seeing, uh, making a difference actually are hiring, right? They're, 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 they're growing faster than the ones that aren't. And so I think it's a choice. Like I like to say to people, like 
people who create breakthroughs or part of breakthroughs, they free their minds from the normal limits that most people impose on themselves. Most people are limited not because of the limits of the world or the, the hand that they were dealt. They're limited because of their own limiting beliefs about their own abilities or about what's possible. And so, yeah, I may be better off than a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I'm not right when I say that uh, <laughs> this is better path, right? And it's like, uh, and so like you're right or wrong based on the reasoning of what you say, not based on what tribe you're in, not based on color of your skin, none of those things. Like all I say is like evaluate the argument on the face of it based on reason, right? Yes. Um, I like to say, you know, in the West, we have to decide who said this? Jonathan Haidt, in the West, we have to decide, is our mission to encourage a way of thinking like John Stuart Mill, or is it Karl Marx? John Stuart Mill said, Western culture is about critical inquiry. It's about reason. It's about the idea that we can increase our knowledge and increase all of our standard of living. We can all be better off and that there are there we should seek the truth in our discussions. Karl Marx says, look, all of life is a struggle between who has power, who doesn't have power, that there's no objective reality and reason beyond just like the people who don't have the power are right to try to take it from the people who do. And so that's what wokeism has become, right? Wokeism has become, hey, I don't I don't want to engage with you in the realm of reason. I, I, I'm just like, you're powerful, I'm not. Therefore, it's axiomatic, that's unjust. Whatever te techniques I want to use, the ends justify the means. But now you're no longer to have you're no longer able to have an honest conversation about what really works. Uh, and, and you know, uh, rather than who wins, like what's right, you know. Uh, and so, and Christopher, I just realized I've got a one thirty. I got to go. But um, <laughs> if you want to if you want to keep doing this, let me know, because uh, there's a few other fun topics. I think uh, that I, I want to do a fucking two billion hour miniseries with you. So whenever you're ready. <laughs> so <laughs> I got my hand raised. Um, All right. Okay. I think we could probably kick out there at wokeism and 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 come back to it because there's a lot to talk about there. And 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 you know the the yeah. interesting thing, the one thing I'll say about that, and then let you go is, you know, today you can sort of show up and be who you want and, and work. If you want to be called them or there, and you want to be trans, and you want to do that, you can do that. And and I support that a thousand percent. There's an interesting thing, however, I'm not allowed to use the language that I want. Right. So I can go to work and address, but in some companies, if you say the word fuck, you're going to get, you know, they're going to call HR. Right. And so that, that's my objection with wokeism overall, which is it's a, it's really a control mechanism in not always, but it can be a control mechanism, not what I think it should be, which is opening a dialogue around making the world okay for people who are different. Right. And, and, you know, like to me where it crosses the line is let's say you've got a campus like Berkeley or Stanford, a controversial speaker comes to speak. You as someone who doesn't agree with their ideas have every right not to attempt that speech. You don't have to listen to that person where I have a problem with people is when they say, no, that person can't speak at the campus. No one's allowed to listen to that person. Not just me, nobody, not you, not anybody. We're not allowed to say those words because words are violence. 
and I need this campus to be a safe place away from those violent words. I'm like, words aren't violent. Violence is violence. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and, and it's like, there's kind of this debasement of the, of the very term. Right. And so it's just, it, it's just an example of where they're not even attempting to show up in good faith. Yes. And so, um, and so anyway, longer discussion, I got to bounce. Thanks Mike. Love you. Talk to you soon. Well, there he is, Mike Maples Jr. You can find him at floodgate.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with somebody that you respect, admire, and maybe even love right now? The Oddcast player you're listening to uh, has a share feature. And if you hit that feature right now, you can send it to uh, the hundred of your closest friends that you uh, (laughs) love the most. All right. We would like to thank, of course, we'd like to thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your time and attention. We deeply appreciate it. Now, there is a seminal question that most CEOs have a very hard time answering. And that question is, are you going to meet, beat, or miss your revenue number? That's where my friends at Clary come in. You see, Clary is the world's first revenue platform, and it empowers your entire enterprise to collaborate on and govern revenue. Now, marketing, sales, customer success, and finance teams can work together on revenue. Visit C-L-A-R-I, that's Clary, C-L-A-R-I.com today and learn how to optimize your revenue. My friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Remember, your website is often the first thing somebody sees or hears about your company. So check out Otrade.net today and get your rapid relaunch. My friends at InterviewValet.com are the leaders in podcast interview marketing. If you want to get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts, check out interviewvalet.com. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes in this oddcast, as this is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Warning, the creators of this oddcast may have been consuming libations. <laughs> we are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. And if you want to do legendary podcasting, Check out jason.fyi. That's jason.fyi. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon and the Bobus Brothers. RJ and EX do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm, and if you must send us email... Send it to blackhole at lockhead.com. Don't forget that uh, Joan Jett was right. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Remember to teach entrepreneurship. And please, for the love of God, or whoever you love in life, get out of the fucking left-hand lane. Some of us are going somewhere. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Gregory. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you again for investing part of your life with us. We deeply appreciate it. Stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.